0: but we're in 1 Kings chapter 12 and in a little bit we're going to stand and when we stand we show respect for God's word and that's why we do it. Um, But I want to get you ready for this a little bit. I think um, that today in this series is actually the most important one of all of them but it's probably not going to be the most exciting one. I do think it's the most important one and what we're going to be looking at starting next week and the and the two weeks after that are really what idolatry is looking like on the national level. What we're looking at today is what idolatry looks like on the personal level. And until we deal with our own idols, we cannot deal with national ones. So I'm going to ask you to really soberly listen, but do more than listen. This is really always how I ask you to sit under anybody's preaching. Interact. Speak in your mind, in your heart. Pray, Lord, are you speaking to me? Is there something I need to see? Colleges all over our nation are rising up in support of Hamas terrorists. You're seeing the news. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Where is that coming from? support for lgbq plus ideology spreading like wildfire everywhere where's that coming from ohio in the next week or two trying to pass the most permissive abortion law in its state history gray divorces those are divorces for 50 year olds and up gray divorce rates have doubled between 1990 and 2015 80% of single-parent families in America are led by mothers. That means, friends, one-quarter of our youth, 25% of America's children, are growing up with no active father in their homes. Look at the fallout. These are all secular statistics. These are not Christian statistics. Fudged statistics. Not that they always are. These are secular fudged statistics. 85% of kids with behavioral disorders, along with 70% of addicted teens, are coming from fatherless homes. Yet another mass shooting. And we really need to ask, is there something more than even mental illness among mass shooters? What is going on beneath what we're seeing happening? Is there an explanation? I believe there is. And this series is meant to bring it out of the shadows and into the light. It's meant to open our eyes like Elisha prayed for his servant to That God would open his eyes, and God did, and he saw ringed around them chariots of fire, angels of defense. That's what I'm asking the Lord to do through this series. There are rulers, authorities, and cosmic forces. They are demonic, personal entities. And they are working out the schemes of their commander, Satan... And along in a partnership with the world system that we live in and the flesh of every person that resists the the rule and reign of God, they all rage against the church. They are working to blind the eyes of unbelievers. They're even blinding the eyes of Christians so that Christians don't really think there's that much evil happening. Yet there is. And what we're going to see today as we turn to 1 Kings chapter 12 is we're going to see the fundamental scheme of the devil in the heart of every single person. It's what makes what we're going to look at the next three weeks work. We're going to see the scheme of Jeroboam. If you could stand with me and you could open your Bibles if you haven't already to 1 Kings chapter 12 and we are going to read uh, this passage as as I read it if you could follow it along. Let's start at verse 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel And made two calves of gold. These are idols. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. These are false idols. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. This is a northern town and a southern town. Then this thing became a sin. For the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar." So he did in Bethel sacrificing to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel, and on the 15th day in the eighth month and the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. You may be seated? That is the reading of God's word. Here's now what I would ask you to do, and that is to begin praying and listening and interacting with what I'm about to tell you as we unpack this. I'm going to show you three things that make up the scheme of Jeroboam. Next week, the scheme of Baal, the scheme of Ashereth, and the scheme of Moloch. That's what's coming in the next three weeks. Today is the one that's below all of them, the scheme of Jeroboam. Here's number one. We're going to look at the sin of Jeroboam, the sin of Jeroboam. Now some of you I I know already know this. I grew up outside of Syracuse in a little farm town called Derider, and we received lake effect snow. We actually got more snow in the Syracuse area than Buffalo, New York does on average each year. So it was a snowy, snowy area of New York, and I loved it. But our driveway was a couple hundred feet long, and every single inch of it was uphill. And so to get up that driveway in the winter, you had to really get a running start. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to back us up for a minute, and then we're going to get a running start to look at the sin of Jeroboam. It all started with Solomon. Solomon, as you know, the king of Israel, had 700 wives, 300 concubines. And those wives, well, here's how it worked If you want to stop fighting with Egypt, then marry Pharaoh's daughter. And all of a sudden, there's going to be an alliance and there's going to be peace. And that's a majority of the reasons why he married so many wives. It was foolish. In other words, he did not trust in God's power to bring peace and to keep peace in Israel and to protect Israel. He formed his own alliances. And this, my friends, is the making of idolatry let me put it as simply as I can every idol in our hearts springs out of one of two and possibly both fears God is not good or God is not great either God is not good to us or God is not powerful enough to give us what we think we need Every idol springs out of fear. You're going to see it in a minute. Every idol springs out of fear, and all of those fears can come down a funnel and distill to one of those two. Either you do not really believe God is good to you, or you do not believe God is powerful. Every one of us, you're looking at somebody that struggles with idols. I'm looking at a lot of people who struggle with idols. Every single one of us struggles with idols. And I just gave you the origin story of every one of them. So you've got Solomon... He's got all of these wives, but they bring with them these foreign pagan gods. And they eventually lead Solomon's heart away from Yahweh into false worship. So God judged Solomon. And he said, because you did not walk in the way of your father, David, who followed me with all of his heart, I am going to split the kingdom of Israel, but I will not do it in your time. I will do it in during the life of your son. He had a son named Rehoboam. But when Solomon was alive, and this is important, there was a man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was an incredibly, the Bible says, industrious man. He was a hard worker, and he was incredibly capable. He was really good at what he did. And Solomon set his sights on young Jeroboam and put him at an early age over all of the labor force of Israel. So here's the top labor union guy. This is Jeroboam. He's got a position of power. Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam comes to the throne, and he is a heavy-handed young man. He will not listen to wisdom from the elderly counselors. He taxes the people of Israel into oblivion, and the people say, we cannot withstand this. And Jeroboam, very subtly, steps up and runs for office. He says to Israel all the malcontents which was a majority of Israel If you want to come under me I will lead you a lot better than Rehoboam will 10 of the 12 tribes called the northern kingdom now come underneath Rehoboam there's a civil war in Israel he executes a coup two of the 12 tribes stays with Rehoboam the son of Solomon But those who cause division, those who cause division never learn to trust. Because what goes around, what? Comes around. Listen to what Jeroboam says in verse 26. Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David, verse 27, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So here's fear. I told you every idol is birthed from fear. Jeroboam lived in fear that his nation, won by his his coup, might be lost the same way. What does he do? He forges two golden calves and says to Israel, here's your gods who brought you out of Egypt. And then he creates or he builds two pagan temples and he puts a calf in each one, one at the northern part of the kingdom, one at the southern to intercept people going to Egypt or going to Jerusalem or going to Assyria. It keeps them bottled into the nation. And then he ordains false prophets to facilitate the false worship. Here's what Jeroboam did, which no other king of Israel ever could. He popularized and normalized idolatry. And it became a sin, a snare for Israel, God's people. Now, you remember from last week, if you were here, I told you there are personal, powerful, demonic entities behind every false god. And if you don't believe that, I didn't read last week this verse. I was saving it to this week. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10... I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. A pagan god is a false god energized by a personal, powerful demon. But idolatry, I'm afraid some of us are going to think, well, we're Americans, we're modern, we're technologically superior. We don't bow down to little carved idols. We don't cut ourselves waiting for the blood to flow and the God to respond. But God said some very important words to his prophet Ezekiel. He said, son of man... These men have taken their idols into their hearts. The problem with idolatry is not an external issue. It's an internal issue of motivation. And Where did that come from? Can you hear this? Can you listen to this and learn this if you don't know it already? God has created every coffee thermos to spill over in a pew at some point every weekend. But not only did he create that, God has created every single human being with a hardwired bent to worship. Everyone. There is no exception to this. Not even the atheist or the agnostic. Everybody has a hardwired bent to worship. You're going to worship something. God's original creative intent was to worship Him. And by worshiping Him, we would would have contentment and satisfaction and joy in a relationship of love with Him. But idolatry is worshiping. But worshiping something or someone other than God. It's saying to God, I will not surrender to you. I do not want to find my contentment with you. I don't think you're good. I don't think you're great. I'm going to find it in what I think is good and great over here. The greatest angel in heaven, his name was Lucifer to begin with, you know him more popularly as Satan, called the morning star. They believe he was the worship director. His job was to worship, was to direct all creation's worship to Yahweh, Jehovah. But he stepped into the stream. He got a sip of it. And he said, I want this. And he became filled with pride and diverted the worship To himself, or at least tried to. He led a coup in heaven. One-third of the angels followed him and rebelled against God. God rose up, cast them out of heaven, shipwrecked them to earth. And we find him appearing in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. And he comes to Adam And the woman, her name is not yet Eve until the next chapter, which means mother of all living. Now she is taken from man. That is what woman means. So he comes to the woman. He never speaks once to the man. Comes to the woman. And he puts a crack in her faith. He puts a suspicion in her heart that maybe God is not good to you. Because he does know that the moment you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like him. And the unspoken message is he doesn't want competition. She ate and gave some to her husband who was with her the entire time and did nothing. Nothing. This is false worship. They took from the tree to eat. They put their reliance, their hope, their dreams, their anticipation, their needs in the fruit to bring them what they were craving, not trusting that God would give them the contentment and satisfaction and worth and value that they thought they deserved. See, that's what idolatry is. It's a heart full of desire to be like God, to sit on the throne. It's the motivation of our hearts. Idolatry, let me put a definition on it. Idolatry is an internal motivation to trust something or someone other than God to fulfill the insatiable desires of our hearts. That's what it is by definition, But let me show you what it is in action. I'll give you four examples of what idolatry looks like. If someone more learned than me was up here, they could go on for months and months and months. It's endless. This is why John Calvin said, our minds are forges for idols. We churn them out one after another. Let me give you one scenario. It's a Saturday. And you had a really hard week And you want nothing more than to escape the pressure you had to deal with all week. A desire begins to build within you. A thought, a yearning for relief and escape. And you're about to gain that relief and that escape from a bottle. You go to the store. You hand over the cash or you swipe your card making your sacrifice. And you can hardly wait to get home to crack open that can of beer or that bottle of scotch. You get home, you lift a drink to your lips, you're pouring out your offering to the God of bliss, the God that will make everything good, the God of your escape, and there are temples to this God everywhere. They've now established and set them up in grocery stores to make their wares even more accessible. Their altars are everywhere, and their priests and their celebrities have advertisements all over YouTube promising happiness and contentment with their smiling faces as they sell their gin and their beer and all the while rulers and authorities and cosmic forces are working in the shadows to keep people in the ruin and shambles of addiction recently the powerball lottery reached 1.73 billion dollars and i hardly think i had to tell you that you you likely already knew And you saw it and you began to imagine probably the happiness you'd have if you won that money. But I'm going to tell you something quickly. You will never get happiness from winning the money. The money will always win you. And you go to the many temples and sacrifice your cash for $2 tickets. Or if you want the power play tickets, you put $3 down. And you guard that precious ticket like it's a child. Looking at the numbers repeatedly, and all the while, in your mind, you're hoping, and in your affections, you're dreaming of winning it. and But yet, you've got this nagging little voice of Tim Ackley that tells you you shouldn't be having a love of money, so you sanitize it. Look at all the good that I could do. And all the while, the lottery commission priests, with all their ads, stir up your worship. This is the normalization of idolatry in America. Let me give you a third scenario. You're nervous. You're nervous and you're excited because the prom is coming up. And you don't want to be the only one of your friends without a date sitting at home. That would crush you. That would be humiliating. That would just further the sense that you already struggle with that nobody really loves you. No one really likes you. You're not attractive. To anybody if only you could get the nerve to ask that girl out or please God you pray let that boy ask me so you drop hints you test the waters you have your friends send up signals prearranged all the while you're terrified it might not happen at the same time you're exhilarated that it might because your dreams might just come true that's idolatry You have a terrible day at work. You just wanna get home. Your whole commute, you're you're thinking, you're trying to fight it, but you know you're gonna lose because it's already gained traction in your mind. The battle's over, you did not take it captive. All you can think about is that waiting at home at some point this evening You will have the opportunity to climb into an alternate universe that is always there waiting for you. And in that universe, only pleasure exists. You are the king, or you are the queen. You are sitting on the throne. Everybody is there to serve you. They have you as the object of their delight. This is the world of porn. And the temple of the Internet, with all of its priests and priestesses, porn actors, offer an endless promise of satisfaction. If you will just sacrifice your integrity, if you will just defile your conscience, you can have all the fulfillment you've been dreaming of. And all of your problems of the week are gone. That's idolatry. If we had time, we could talk about Amazon, that relief, that joy you get when you just start mindlessly searching and you don't even really want to plunk the money down. It's enough of a relief just to keep looking or Facebook Marketplace, or eBay, or Zillow. We can find every imaginable idol in a temple that is always near us, and it has an uncountable class of priests that are always promising fulfillment of your every single desire. You see, the sin of Jeroboam was idolatry. But his sin was about to have far-reaching and very intentional consequences. Number two, the way of Jeroboam. We looked at the sin of Jeroboam. Now we're going to see the way of Jeroboam. Let me tell you something. If you studied this week, 1 and 2 Kings, you will see over and over Jeroboam, quote, made Israel to sin, made them embrace idolatry. Here's an example, and God will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned, And made Israel to sin. Over 20 times you read this. Yet when the Bible, when 1st and 2nd Kings. Now listen to this. This is actually maybe the most important thing I'm going to tell you so far. When the Bible refers to the generations that are going to follow Jeroboam. It often changes the wording. Baasha did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, now watch this, and walked in the way of Jeroboam. You never read that when Jeroboam's alive. Now you read it when he's dead and his progeny, his family line, is following him. In the way of Jeroboam and in a sin which he made Israel to sin. Here's what you're seeing. The sin of Jeroboam became the way of Jeroboam. In other words, the sin of Jeroboam became the way of his children and grandchildren. And it became the culture of Israel. Now, you might not be understanding this yet, but this is absolutely massive. And this is very much the intentional scheme of Jeroboam. Fathers of which I am one. Our lives, listen, our lives have a direct effect on those who follow us in our family line. Now, don't put an equal sign, because you're just going to heap up unnecessary and moralistic guilt on you. The way that you live as a father equals the way your children turn out. There is no equal sign in Scripture. But the father greatly affects their children and their grandchildren, watch this, all the way to this third and fourth generation. God warned his people, you shall not bow down to them or serve idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Moms, I'm not minimizing your influence. You are unbelievable. My wife says it best all the time. I'm the head of the home. She's the neck that turns the head. Very, very well said. She's incredibly influential. But there is nobody more influential in your home than the father. Nobody. Are there idols in your hearts? Can you just suspend disbelief for a moment? And trust me, there are. There are. And those sins can become the way, the, the course of life is what the word way means. It can be the course of life, the way that your children and your grandchildren live. I'm going to show you hope in a moment, but listen to this. John Piper helpfully says it this way. No one as a child has ever been punished for a father's sins. Only guilty children are punished and are guilty of the very sins that their fathers sinned. So if you influence your children and your grandchildren, and they adopt the way that you lived, they're making a choice. And God will hold them responsible. And if you walk in righteousness, and your children and your grandchildren learn the way of that walk, then God will show steadfast love all the way to the third and fourth generation. The Bible clearly says the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So what am I saying? Am I speaking out of both sides of my mouth? Not at all. Men, I'm one of them. If we have idols in our hearts, and we will not surrender them to the Lord in confession and repentance, they will influence our children and our grandchildren and move them to learn the way of our sin. But God is in the interrupting business. And the moment, even right now, if you are admitting and if you are seeing these idols in you and you begin to confess and you begin to repent of them and you begin to walk in righteousness, then God's mercy flows not only to your own life but to the lives of your children and your grandchildren. So sit under this for a moment. If your children are living in moral ruin, look to yourself. That's hard to hear look to yourself and ask God to expose the idols and when he does confess them and repent of them and let your children and your grandchildren begin to see what a righteous father looks like and let the mercies of God flow See, sin has a corporate effect, as does righteousness. It doesn't just affect you, that's the lie of America. We're an individualistic nation. What I do affects me. I can be private about it. No, you cannot. Sin has a corporate effect. It always has. This is why the sin of Adam has permeated every human being since. This is what Romans 5 and 6 talk about. The corporate power of sin is undone by the corporate effect of righteousness. Our idolatry fathers will affect our children and grandchildren but so too will our righteous living. Fathers, the way that we live affects others. No one more than our family lying after us. And that's why Jonah, of all people, he wouldn't expect this from Jonah. Jonah, of all people, chapter 2, verse 8, says those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. The moment God shows these to you and you confess them, and repent of them, God's mercy begins to flow, and that mercy always flows downhill. It will come to your children, and it will come to your grandchildren. But number three and final, we've not only seen the sin of Jeroboam become the way of Jeroboam, we're going to look at what God does. He's in a rescue attempt now. And God never attempts anything. He's going to accomplish his purpose and will. We're going to see the end of Jeroboam as we end. If you recall from last week, we are given a spiritual armor to stand against the schemes of Satan. And that armor, this is hard for us. We're very pragmatic. I don't even know if you know how pragmatic we are. We're a a very pragmatic country. In other words, you don't buy something if it doesn't do well in reviews, if it doesn't work well. So we look at the reviews before we make a purchase because that's pragmatism. You don't buy into a philosophy or an ideology until you know if it works well. And if you know it doesn't work well, you avoid it. We like usefulness. We like things that work. We don't want to spend our time on things that won't. So we're always looking at what's going to be practically relevant. Well, if you try to sit under preaching, And waiting and waiting and waiting for the end when the preacher gives you all the practical stuff. You're missing the power of the gospel. Because the power of the gospel doesn't always end and here's three things to do. Here's your gospel pill, take it in the morning, you're gonna feel better. It doesn't end like that. It's much deeper than that. It's much more beautiful than that. It's beholding the glory of the Lord and the more you behold the glory of the Lord in a sermon or in the word of God, it will change you from one degree of glory to another. So it's very difficult for us American pragmatists do something Christians to learn that the best way we can fight the depravity of idolatry is on our knees. We want to do something, not pray. And yet prayer is the most powerful thing you could do. The armor of God is almost entirely defensive. You put on the helmet of salvation so that you can Resist the lies and accusations of the enemy. It won't permeate and go down into your heart and lead you to shame and ruin. You've got a belt of truth around you. It holds a whole armor together so that you can see what's not true. You can detect it. You can discern it so that you don't get on the way of foolishness that leads to death, but you keep your feet on the way of wisdom that leads to life. And you're given a sword. And that sword is a sword of the Spirit, it's the Word of God. And the more you hide it into your heart, the more you've got the most powerful return to the lies of the enemy you will ever have. And they come out even in prayer. What you might not yet see is that Jeroboam in this story is a type, a representative Of our arch foe the devil let me explain he led a civil war Jeroboam did just like Satan did in heaven Jeroboam led Israel away from God just like Satan did with a third of the angels Jeroboam created a false religion complete with false gods and false priests and false prophets and pagan temples just like the devil does everywhere And just like the devil, Jeroboam is going to meet his end by the hand of God himself. And if you want to see it, you can turn to 2 2 Chronicles, rather, chapter 13. And let me set it up as you turn there. 2 Chronicles 13. We're going to find that Jeroboam, he's the king of the northern 10 tribes, he's the king of Israel, has mustered a massive army. Eight hundred thousand chosen soldiers, and he has mobilized them against. The king of Judah, he's got to destroy Judah if his idolatry is going to become pervasive. What stands in his way is the temple of God and Yahweh himself. So he is trying to extinguish Yahweh. He's trying to obliterate Jerusalem and the temple of God. And he goes up against the king of Judah with his 400,000. Remember, I told you that Jeroboam was no slouch of a commander. He was a genius. He executed a classic pincer movement, he divided his troops and sent 400,000 of them secretly south to come up behind the 400,000 men of Judah. So now there's 400,000 north, there's 400,000 south. They've got them in a pincer movement. Victory is certain. The men of Judah discover what has happened, and what do they do? What do you do when you see the idols of your heart? They cried out to Yahweh. And 2 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 15 tells us what happened. And when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam, and all Israel before Abiah, that's the king of Judah, and Judah. The men of Israel fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand. Abiah and his people struck them with great force, so there fell slain of Israel 500,000 chosen men. The word slain in the Hebrew language it can either mean killed or wounded. So killed or wounded, 500,000 Israelites fell. God defeated Jeroboam. God gave them into their hand. And soon God would fully judge Israel for their normalization of idolatry because it became the way of Jeroboam. And he led Assyria from Iran, the most powerful nation on the planet, to come down 600 miles to defeat them, utterly conquering them. Why? Why? The Bible tells us why in 2 Kings 17.9. Listen, it won't be on the screen, so listen to this. The people of Israel did secretly against the Lord the things that are not right. If you came up to me and said, Pastor Tim, what one verse in all of the Bible best captures the modern church? I probably would read that same verse. The church did secretly against the Lord the things that are not right. See, the problem is idolatry. And that problem, my friends, is in your heart, and it is in my heart. And we shove them down deep until they are in the secrets of Of shadows and we don't tell anybody about them and that's where they have the most pernicious power of all you see military and political reform cannot rid a nation a church or a person of idolatry it cannot do it the only thing that can is the gospel of Jesus Christ The work of Jesus on the cross and the empty tomb is the only power that can jettison idols from the hearts of God's people. And until those idols are gone, the devastating effects of idolatry will impact our own lives and the hearts and the lives of our families to the third and fourth generation, you will pass your sins down into your children until it becomes the way that they live. But righteousness works the same. Here's the solution. You want your practical step? Here it is. If God is showing you even right now that you have idols in your hearts, The only way to get them from the shadow into the light is through confession. That's what a confession means. It means to push from the shadows into the light, to get it out in the open. And then you repent. And the moment you repent, the mercies of God that had been restrained in your life, the joy of God that had been held back, the satisfaction of God that had not been yours, All comes flooding into your life. And you begin to live in the victory that Jesus Christ has won for you. And as you live out that victory, it permeates downhill into the lives of your children and your grandchildren. And undoes the idolatrous ways until it becomes the way of wisdom that will lead them to life. That's the power of the gospel. Can you stand? I'm not going to ask anybody to get out of your pew, but I am going to ask you to stand for a moment. Can I ask you a question? You could be, you really can't be utterly honest. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but I am going to ask you a question Is God showing you a secret sin? That's an idol that's lodged down deep in your heart, and you have not yet surrendered it. Far as I know, this is true. I was always told this, and I think it's true. Every time God calls his people to repent, he called them to repent publicly. So I'm going to ask you to do something. This is all I'm going to ask you to do. Again, you will not need to come forward. I'm just going to ask you to be honest. If God is showing you right now there is an idol in your life, would you just raise your hand? I'm not even going to ask you to tell us what it is. Just raise your hand and be honest. I keep your hand up because my tendency when I'm on the receiving end like you are is put it up and down, okay? Just keep it up. Let's just be honest. Boy, that's you're, you're well on your way of expelling the idol from your heart through confession. You cannot stop here. You need to tell somebody who is godly, who will not tell you, oh, that's okay, everybody does. No, it's not okay. It's ruining your life. It's affecting your family. You can put your hands down. Can I ask you, talk to somebody about it. Admit it. Confess it. The mercies of God are going to start flowing. And repent of it. And let's see what God will do, not only in your own life and in this church, but in your family's lives as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Lord, thank you for what we see in the sin and the way of Jeroboam. But Lord, thank you for what we see with the end of Jeroboam. Lord, you had risen up and you had brought an end to the way of Jeroboam. Lord, thank you for that. Father, would you do the same with us? Would the power of the gospel work in our own lives, Father? Let us not leave here and shove them back down into the secret. That's where the enemy wants. Let's get them out. And the people that we talk to, let them be ministers of reconciliation. They will be able to say, this is not good. But I will pray with you. Let's confess it now and repent. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.